If you would, please join me and turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 43. As I mentioned a moment ago, we're picking up where we left off last week, uh, not only because it's the next consecutive psalm, but indeed it's just picking up where the thought left off uh, from Psalm 42. As we go to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so, Father, would you feed us the truth of your word today? Would your spirit give us understanding and a growing desire and ability to put your truth into practice? Father, may your word before us be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, last Sunday and today, it's one unified psalm. Uh, we saw last week with Psalm 42 that that begins book two of the Psalter. The Psalter, all 150 psalms are divided into five books. It's thought to mirror the five books of Moses as the psalms were organized and structured and, and put together in the form that we have today. And so last Sunday was Psalm 42, today is Psalm 43. And as we heard, these are two parts of a single close-knit poem that one commentator says is sadly beautiful. And you probably heard the sad beauty in, in singing Psalm 43. Uh, there was a sadness to it, it's a minor key, because everything, as you know, in life, in the Christian life, is not an exuberant, um, carefree um, happiness. No, there is struggle and hardship and difficulty, and yet trust in God in the midst of it, and we see that in Psalm 42 and 53. The psalm, if you take a look at both of them together, uh, has a refrain that unites three stanzas, and there's three movements. We saw last week a past and a present movement, and today a future movement. What's the context for this psalm? We don't have a whole lot of historical details, but the psalmist is, is living in exile. He's away from Jerusalem. He's away from the temple. He's away from the people of God, and he's being taunted by, by pagan neighbors, and he knows he's not abandoned by God, but he most certainly feels like it. He feels abandoned by God. And this Psalm 43, just like Psalm 42, is a, a lament because the psalmist, he yearns to return to Jerusalem, to the temple, to corporate worship, to be in the fellowship with God's people, in God's presence. He laments his situation and his circumstances, and he longs for deliverance. And restoration. I think with that very description itself, it is extremely applicable to our lives. Living here between the already and the not yet, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, life is at times miserable. Miserable. We heard last week that reminder from the shorter catechism that the fall of man brought us into an estate of sin and misery. We are made liable to all the miseries of this life. Christians, just like all people, can be at times miserable. And I think we've all been there. We've been thinking recently about the fact that what can miserable Christians sing? 
the Psalms. I want to repeat briefly something that I uh, quoted last week, and I think I included it in the preparing for worship um, email, the quote of the week. And in it, Chris Wright in his book, The God I Don't Understand, Reflections on Tough Questions of Faith, says this, it seems indeed that it is precisely those who have the closest relationship with God, who feel most at liberty to pour out their pain and protest to God without fear of reproach. Lament is not only allowed in the Bible, it is modeled in abundance. God seems to want to give us as many words with which to fill out our complaint forms as to write our thank you notes. Did you hear that? Those who are closest to God are those who have the most liberty, as it were, to complain to God because they're in a relationship with God. They, they approach this God without fear, without fear of being told to go away and come back when you get it together. Go away until your life is, is better organized. No, those in close relationship with the Lord feel free Indeed, have the freedom to come near. In fact, the Psalms would say this, that, that, that there is a freedom of intimacy with God. And yet there is a slavery of formality with God. Let's turn our attention now to Psalm 43. Last week, in Psalm 42, we asked the question about do you know anyone who talks to themselves? Have you ever run up against somebody unexpectedly and found them talking to themselves? And I think we, we understood that, that talking to yourself, especially as the psalmist, we see three times argue with himself, talk to himself. It's not a sign of mental illness or mental instability. Rather, it's one of spiritual sanity, spiritual stability. So I think all of us, initially, when we come, out, come upon somebody talking to themselves, we're a little bit taken aback. But what about prayer? Because in prayer, Christians are talking to God. I remember years ago um, when I had the opportunity to preach the, the funeral sermon of my father, and I was describing his life, I told of time and time again, I would run unannounced into my parents' bedroom. And I would often find my father doing two things, reading his Bible or on his knees praying. And I was able to describe to the folks gathered at his funeral what that did for me as a son, to see my father in the word and in prayer and so I would stumble upon my father talking, not to himself, but to God. I think many of us are in situations at times when we're getting ready for an event and people know we're the Christian out there and there's going to be a meal and they ask us to pray, right? And so right then and there we pray and we talk to God. And I wonder what people are thinking. Do they think we're crazy by talking to someone we can't see? Well, we can't see God presently right now, but oh, 
those of us who have been given faith know he is absolute, absolutely real. And so talking to God in prayer is not, as some of our friends would say, a sign of mental illness or mental instability, but rather prayer is a sign of spiritual sanity and spiritual strength, uh, stability. So in Psalm 42, we focused on the psalmist talking to himself. Here in Psalm 43, our focus will be on the psalmist talking to God. In other words, praying to God. And so we're going to open up and examine this psalmist prayer. Why? Why would we take the time to open up and explore these five verses? Well, Paul writes toward the end of Romans this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction." that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so this prayer, this psalm is going to instruct us. But more than that, as God's Spirit takes this truth and applies it to our hearts, we are going to be given endurance and encouragement. Why? So that we might have hope. And so what I believe we will see in this prayer are two major components and two major directions. The two components are this, petition and praise. And the two directions are this, God moving toward man and man moving toward God. Let's look first at the petition, God toward man. And I want to go ahead and read now all of Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So the first component is petition, the first direction is God moving toward man. Before we look at this first petition, let's remind ourselves of where we are in this unified psalm. There's been the lost past, the first five verses of Psalm 42, the painful present, verses 6 through 11 in Psalm 42, and now we are in the expected future, the hoped for future. Look back with me at, uh, at verse 9 of Psalm 42. It's the center of gravity. It's the turning point of this unified psalm. You see in verse 8, verse 8 has interrupted the flow of thought and it's injected a note of confidence. It's the statement of faith and trust in the midst of trials. His revival is beginning. Notice he cries out to God in verse 9, my rock. The psalmist is not an atheist. Rather, he's a discouraged believer. The psalmist is going to ask now in, in Psalm 43 to move toward him. You know, often people 
want God to stay away from them. They want to run from God. But here he wants God to move toward him. Why? Why? He's in misery and he's desperate. He, he knows that only an act of God can rescue him. He, he cannot rescue himself. He, he wants to be brought home and he knows he can't do it. He's surrounded by the ungodly. And, and the psalmist means by the ungodly, uh, those who are not in a covenant relationship with God. And they are further described as the deceitful and the unjust. In verse 2, even though he says that God, you're the one in whom I take refuge, he questions, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? He acknowledges God as his stronghold, and yet he mourns. He's, he's sure about God on the one hand, but he's battered by life on the other hand. He's desperate. He's desperate. Before we go on, let me ask you this question. Are you desperate for God? You know, we heard earlier, and, and Jesus says, of course, when tempted... You know, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Have, you, have any of you been hungry, like for real hungry? I think we in the United States, most of us don't really know what hunger is, but of course, people die of hunger. They are desperate for food. Are you desperate for God? Are you desperate for His word? I find myself most spiritually attuned, most spiritually alert, most able to listen patiently to others, most able to offer maybe a word of encouragement, most able to be a blessing rather than a curse in people's lives if I acknowledge I am right then and there desperate for God. The world around us says no, just take care of yourself. And the Christian says, no, God, you've got to take care of me. I have no other hope. No other hope. So look with me at petition number one. We see it in verse one. Vindicate me, defend me, deliver me. It's actually, if you look at the whole psalm together, Psalm 42 and 43, this is the real prayer. This is the prayer of petition. This is the asking. And even with these words, I think we tend if you're like me, to, to try to vindicate ourselves, to defend ourselves, to deliver ourselves. And yet the psalmist is saying, God, you judge me. We just sang it. Judge me, God of my salvation. You judge me, God. William Plummer, a 19th century um, Theologian and commentator says this, when our cause is good, the Lord becomes our advocate. When our cause is good, we don't have to be our own advocate. The Lord will be our advocate. And, and, and that's what the psalmist is saying. Um, think with me about Paul in his letters to the churches. Paul looks to the Lord for his defense. He looks to the Lord for his deliverance. And he looks for the Lord for his judgment. Here the psalmist says, judge me, God, vindicate me, de defend my cause, deliver me. Um, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4, and, and 
And hear how Paul is asking for God to judge him. He writes to the church in Corinth, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is, very, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Let that sink in. I don't care about your judgment. And in fact, I don't even care about my judgment of me. But I do care about judgment. I care about the Lord's judgment. He, he says in verse 4, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am thereby not acquitted, or but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation before the Lord. The psalmist is saying, judge me, God. You know the truth. Paul is saying, judge me. David, in his sin of counting his soldiers, he was offered some choices of God's response. And remember what David chose? And we, we see it in 2 Samuel 24. This is what David said. I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. That's what the psalmist is saying. Lord, these are, these are deceitful men, unjust men. Rescue me, deliver me, and Lord, you judge me. And as David said, it's a good thing to fall into God's hands. He's merciful. Man, not so much. And the second petition is this. We see it beginning in verse 3. Send help. Send your light and your truth. They will lead me and bring me back. Remember the earlier metaphors in Psalm 42. There was the drought. And then there was the storm. And here there's a picture of a rescue party being sent out to deliver, to rescue. He's looking for light in a dark time. He's looking for truth in a time of deception and deceit. He acknowledges that light and truth are guides. He wants to live in God's light. He wants to cherish God's truth. So continuing in verse 3, he says this, Let them bring me, that is the light and the truth, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Now in my study of this psalm, Every commentator said there is a, an ambiguity here. Is it a literal homecoming that the psalmist is looking forward to? Or is it, as it were, a figurative homecoming? And most scholars, most commentators have, have landed on the side that it's most likely figurative. Because it's a strange way to say, I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. I'm going to bring you back to Mount Zion with light and truth. It's more likely that these are images 
so that the psalmist can see, as we will discuss in a moment, that even though he's outside of the Holy Land, away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, yet he is with God. Yet God is with him. And so the light and the truth that the psalmist needs enable him to enjoy, even in exile, the blessings of God's presence. The blessing of being in the house of God, even in exile, if only the Lord will draw near to him. Think with me for a moment. The, 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 the psalmist wants to go home, and isn't that what many of us long for? We want to go home to where we're welcomed, home to where we belong, home where our heart is, home where the Father says come, where brothers and sisters are. And yet, he's not there. Circumstances beyond his control have taken him away. And yet, he must have heeded the words of someone like Jeremiah, who in Jeremiah 7, we hear the Lord say, do not trust in these deceptive words. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see, Solomon, when he was building the temple, recognized that even this man-made structure could not contain the glory of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is full of his glory. Yes, God had said, Jerusalem is my city. Mount Zion is my mount. The temple is the place where I will dwell. The temple is where I will meet with you. But even in exile, even when churches, even to this day, cannot meet for public worship, the building does not, the absence from the building does not take them away from the Lord. Otherwise, we're in a superstitious religion. Is this building great? Absolutely. If it were to burn tonight, would that somehow destroy our relationship with God? Absolutely not. The psalmist is in exile from home, but he's not in exile from God. And so the first component of his prayer is petition. He's asking God. He's asking God to deliver him, to send help. He's asking God to move toward him. Now the second component of his prayer is praise. He is promising God that he will move toward him in praise. Uh, Let's take a look. Look at verse 4. Then, that's interesting, isn't it? God, send your deliverance, and then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. It's almost like an if-then situation. If you do this, God, then I will do that. God acts. And man reacts. God is proactive and man is reactive. The psalmist is confident that God will move toward him and that he will move toward God in praise. Kids, think with me about this, and we've talked about this before. Christianity is alone among all religions. Number one, it's alone because it is the revealed religion. It is the true religion. 
Everything else is man-made. And think with me about man-made religion. It's about the ascent of man. It's about the movement of man to God. What can I do? What can I sacrifice? What can I say to get to God? Think of all the pagan rituals. Every other religion outside of Christianity is the ascent of man. It's the building of the ladder. And of course, there's a cultural Christianity as well that even though it uses the language of faith, it's still building its own ladder to God. But Christianity being the revealed religion, the true religion, no, it's the descent of God, isn't it? It's God coming to man. It's not man going to God. Think about that. Think about what that, the condescension of God, God coming to man. In Calvin's words, God has to lisp baby talk to speak to us so that we would know him, so that we would understand his world. God acts and man reacts. God is the proactive one. Man is the reactive one. I mean, I'm, people sometimes tell me, oh, well, you need to be proactive. Okay, I get that, right. Think ahead, anticipate, look for problems, solve them before the problem. I get it. But there's a great blessing in being reactive as well. And Christianity, if anything, is a reaction to what God has done in Christ. And in this last part, you see a travel log, a movement from the hill to the temple to the altar to God Himself. And there's a progression of increasing closeness. You start off in the mountain, you go to the place, then the altar, and then God Himself. The psalmist is being led step by step by step to a homecoming. First, it's the hill where Yahweh, the covenant-making and keeping God, chose. It's the dwelling, it's the house He inhabits. It's the altar, it's the approach to Him that He Himself has provided. And then it's to God Himself, the personal fellowship He extends. Do you see that growing intimacy? You're far away and you're moving close all the way to God himself. And how does the psalmist describe God? His stronghold, his refuge, but look with me again in verse 4. My exceeding joy. My exceeding joy. NIV, New International Version, translates it, my joy and my delight. But every other translation I could find says exceeding joy. Exceeding joy. Joy that's above. Joy that's beyond anything else. We all know Westminster Shorter Catechism 1. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And it seems like all of us, myself included, kind of stop with glorify God. And we forget that we are called to enjoy Him forever. I think C.S. Lewis was right when he said, joy is the serious business of heaven. 
few days ago, I was saddened to learn about a couple of deaths. One was a public figure in the United States, and another was J.I. Packer. Wow, the author of Knowing God, the author of many other books, a, a, a popular theologian of the best possible sense, is now with his father face to face. That really hit me. And I'm sure some of you have, uh, have other um, folks that have had an influence in your life and, and I was greatly saddened. But it reminded me of a, a, a book that I found in a bookstore going out of business in Texas years ago. A book called um, Great Joy, a 31-day devotional. And what it is, it's a collection of various sections of books by J.I. Packer. And he says this from his book, Hot Tub Religion. He says this, A joyless Christianity, and joylessness cannot be hidden, will become an obstacle to believing Paul's statement that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, and will render the faith repulsive rather than attractive. Whereas a joyful Christianity is a most arresting advertisement for the transforming power of the gospel. Did you hear that? Packer is saying that joy, that joylessness in the Christian life is repulsive, but joyfulness is attractive and arresting. And joyfulness cannot be hidden and joylessness cannot be hidden. Now, Packer will go on in that book to talk about what joy is and what joy isn't. And it certainly isn't a bubbly personality, necessarily. He, he, he said himself, he doesn't have that. But the Lord has given him joy. And you see the psalmist in these circumstances of difficulty and distress, he refers to God, he calls God his exceeding joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Spiritual Depression, of which we heard last week, where he says, the problem is we listen to ourselves. Instead of talking to ourselves, we need to talk to ourselves. In that book, Lloyd-Jones also says that joyless Christians, joyless Christianity, a joyless church, he says it in a way, it's almost an impossibility. But he also goes on to say that when you have that, it is it is an obstacle to faith. It's not, a, it's not something that helps draw people, as it were. It's not a means by which God uses to draw people to himself. Before we go on, let's ask ourselves this question. What is your exceeding joy? Kids, is it acing a test? Is it doing well in sports? Is it knowing the right people? Adults, what's your exceeding joy? I mean, we all have multiple joys, but what's your exceeding joy? Your joy that's above everything else and beyond everything else. Is it the Lord? That's what we see in Psalm 43. And this psalm ends, of course, with this third Repeat of the refrain, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God.
Again, the problem, the misery leads to the cure. It leads to hope. Here, there's a different tone. Uh, There's a confidence, no longer kind of a defiance. Because the psalmist wants to know that the problem is not that we don't know the truth, but we don't feel its force. He wants us to know that homeward bound or not, the psalmist praises God and we, whether we're still in exile, whether we're still away from the ideal, we praise God. This third refrain, even though it's the same words, it's a triumph. It's an ironic question because the, con- the psalmist has, we've seen, convinced himself to trust in God. He's He knows that God is his vindicating judge, his strength, his guide, and most supremely, his exceeding joy. So I want us to finish by thinking about components and directions. Petition and praise and a movement of God toward man and man toward God. But I really want to talk about just one direction, one direction, God toward man. You see, Jesus, after his resurrection, is explaining to people on the road and his disciples that everything written in the prophets and the Psalms, everything written is pointing to him. It's a prelude to him. You know, that would be an arrogant statement if it wasn't true, wouldn't it? A man saying, the Hebrew scriptures point to me. But of course, if it is true, and since it is true, it's not arrogant. It's a very humble statement that Jesus makes there. Because Jesus is that light and the truth that God has sent forth. We heard that in John 1. That he is the light. He is full of grace and truth, whereas Uh, The law came by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He is our access to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. And so the psalmist's prayer has been answered. God has sent forth His light, Jesus, and His truth, Jesus, to bring us home. Jesus leads us into the very presence of God Think about the imagery of the altar, right? The sacrifice. It's the cross. It's the cross of Christ. It's it's the once and for all sacrifice. That's why we no longer have an altar here. There's no need. The cross has satisfied what the altar looked forward to. And so the one direction is God toward man. But I want us to think about the one component. Petition, yeah, it's got a place. But let's think about praise toward God. So my friends, God has moved toward us. And God has taken action. What is your reaction to that? Have you moved toward God not only in petition, which is well and good and right, but also in praise? Is God and God alone your exceeding joy? 
Is his light and truth the air that you breathe in? And, his, and, and, and is his praise the air that you breathe out? My friends, the psalmist, even though his situation most likely has not changed, the psalmist has found his rest in God alone. Has your soul found rest in God alone? If he's your exceeding joy, he will be your place of rest as well. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us words that describe the situation of living in a sinful and fallen world. Words that describe that even though someone can know you, it's still a difficult life. It's still a hard life. Father, we thank you for this psalmist who petitions you and praises you and who responds to your movement toward him. Oh God, would you be pleased to enable all of us to respond well toward your movement to us, your movement in grace and mercy that are found in Jesus. Oh God, as you move toward us over and over again, help us to run with abandon toward you, knowing that indeed we are desperate and that as Jesus said, apart from him, we can do nothing. For we pray in his name. Amen.